what is it that makes people snap? Hey guys, welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host. Today, I have special guest, Dr. Joni Johnson. Uh, I'm so excited to have you on. You have no idea. Like, I have been following your blog for like two years now. And, oh, I just think you're amazing. (laughs) That's so nice. I really appreciate that. Well, you have like my dream resume. I mean, forensic psychologist, private investigator, crime writer. I feel very lucky. In terms of what I do, it's my favorite thing in the world. It's something I've been wanting to do for so long. And I've been, it's just as much fun as I thought it would be, or as interesting, I guess. Fun is kind of a weird term, but it is in some respects. I I love interviewing people and hearing their stories and communicating about that. And yeah, you know, you look at the situation of Betty Broderick, who she was just one person you wanted to talk about. That case was so extreme and people, I'm sure, wonder what would drive a woman to do that. Yeah, it was really, that was such an interesting case. And I live in Del Mar, which is literally, I could almost throw a rock to La Jolla, which is where she was at the time of the murder. So I have a personal interest in that story. I wasn't involved in it in any way, but it's always been really interesting and on so many different levels. Oh, yeah. I mean, sometimes you sit there and you're like, how could somebody do that? But then when you really get in there, you could see how someone could snap. You you could. And and then the whole word snap is so interesting, right? Because it's like you oftentimes see that this person had done six months earlier and she'd been practicing at the firing range. And, you know, so it's like there's all this. Is it premeditation? And but then there's always um, almost always this triggering thing that happens, which I think is where the whole snap comes from. You know, something happens, an argument or something. And so it does seem like the person snapped at the time. But then when you look back, you kind of go, well, they may have snapped, but that branch was bending a long time before. That. It's like they were waiting for that final snap. Yeah. Or just like, you know, we're saying, I mean, maybe it is kind of like the cup where you keep pouring water in it. At some point, you know, it overflows. Right. Well, I mean, I could understand, you know, you put so much into a person and then you feel you're discarded as trash. It was her whole uh, living that was taken away and she just didn't know how to handle it. You're right. And it's interesting. I mean, it was in some respects a different time. I think a lot of younger women could not relate to that at all. And I remember so many women who had sympathy for her. You know, I think especially older women or women who grew up in the same time period that she did, who, you know, there was a lot of sympathy, deserved or not. I mean, I think when you look at the whole dynamics and the whole situation, she becomes less sympathetic in some respects because of some of the things that she does and and some of the things that she, I guess some of her personality traits before all this happened. Um, but there were definitely some, you know, it sounds like there was some gaslighting in terms of, you know, him having this affair and telling her she's crazy and he's not. And I mean, that's, we can all, I think, relate to the rage you would feel if somebody's telling you that. And then you find out on their 39th birthday when you go surprise them with champagne and roses and they're gone with their girlfriend, (laughs) you can understand the level of rage that that might, you know, evoke at that particular point. Oh, absolutely. What do you think it is that made her finally snap? What makes any woman in any kind of different situation push to that level? Or is there even, is there a level? Do you, have you guys found that there's like a certain level or, I mean, obviously people are different and crazy. <laughs> I think that's such an interesting and really complicated question, Tiffany, because, you know, maybe we all have our own levels and some are like much higher than others. We certainly know that when we're talking about murder, that there's some common motives, you know, love or sex, money, you know, revenge, or some pretty, you know, pretty common motives that people have. So there are triggers, I think, in all of us that can really maybe push us in the direction of doing things we wouldn't normally do. 
But it's always, I think, an interaction because, you know, you look at the situation of Betty Broderick, who was in a tough situation in some respects, you know, for lots of different reasons. She grew up at a time, she always said that she was groomed to be a mom and a a wife from the time she was born. You know, that was her entire identity. Um, She that, you know, she also supported him for years when he was in medical school and law school and really, you know, sacrificed. I, I don't know that she had a lot of ambitions other than to be a wife and a mom, but she certainly did a lot of caretaking, a lot of financial, um, you know, breadwinning in the early years. And I think that she felt like she was investing in this relationship and this marriage. And, you know, there, she came from a Catholic background. So there was a lot of stigma around divorce. So there were, you know, now she's La Jolla, which is a very wealthy area of San Diego County, and she's living the good life and she thinks things are pretty going pretty well and then finds out, of course, that they're not at all. And so you kind of go, okay, a lot of us can look and kind of go, well, I can understand how devastating and enraging it would be, number one, to feel like you had invested all this in somebody and you love this person and now they've betrayed you, number one. Number two, the circumstances are her finding out that her husband's having an affair would be just horrible for anybody, um, you know, in terms of, you know, on his 39th birthday, her going to surprise him. And then she's the one who gets surprised when he's not there. And there's all this, I think, chocolate cake and an empty wine bottle. And she finds out that he's with his younger girlfriend, who apparently looks like her sister, you know, 20 years younger. So there's, you know, there's that piece of it as well. And yet, in spite of these really difficult circumstances, women, I believe, would not do the things that she did. You know, they would not drive their car into the front door of the house. They would not burn all the clothes in the front yard. They might think about it, (laughs) but they probably would not. You know, Um, they probably would not sneak into the ex-husband's room and shoot he and his new wife five times. So it's always, I think, an interactive thing where it's, you know, I, I do believe that if you know, if if Betty Broderick had been married, had remained married, if the situation had been different, I don't think she would have ever hurt anybody. So we can kind of go, okay, the situation obviously had a huge part in that. And yet, when all this happened, I mean, number one, this occurred over a number of years. I mean, he was having an affair, I think, in 1983. Oh, wow. And, you know, I mean, it's not like they separated. And three months later, after her reeling from what she thought was the perfect marriage and finding out he's dating somebody or, you know, sleeping with somebody younger, she just kind of comes unglued. I mean, this is a long process. She has a boyfriend. She's living in the family home. She's getting a certain amount of money every month. um, And yet she literally cannot tolerate the thought of, you know, of the situation. She just can't do it. And she She doesn't want him to be happy because she's not. Exactly. Exactly. And unfortunately for her, she, you know, she does some things that really hurt her. You know, she at one point, for example, you know, drops all the kids off over his house because her thought at that point was, you know, he needs to experience what it's like having all these kids. And if I dump these kids on him, basically, he's going to realize and come back to me. Well, it absolutely backfired on her because he used this as, you know, her abandoning her children. And, you know, so, so, you know, a couple of things, he was an attorney and she felt from the very beginning that she was really fighting upstream, which she was. I mean, he's in this community. He's got a stellar reputation. He understands the law. She said, which we don't know if it's true or not, that she had interviewed, you know, 30, 60 attorneys, none of whom would take her case. She ends up representing herself. It's hard to believe she couldn't find anybody to help her, but that's what she said. And so she she, she felt very victimized, not just from her husband, but from the whole legal community and, you know, felt like there was nobody on her side. You know, and again, now she's so she's doing these things. You know, he gets a restraining order against her because she's the way she's acting. She's making threats. She's leaving these horrible messages. She's threatening to kill him. She's, you know, she does all kinds of things, crazy things. I mean, vandalism. (laughs) Drove into his living room at one point. I think she smears a Boston cream pie all over his sheets. I mean, she just does a lot of very angry you know, vengeful kind of things. And some of these beca- you know, are in violation of a court order. So she's literally, in a way, just handing him all this ammunition against her. 
And what I think eventually leads her to take a gun, get into the house and kill them. And she gets a letter the day before basically telling her, I am going to get custody of the boys. I'm going to take the, the boys from you, which is kind of ironic in a way because she seems to have really lost sight of her children in this whole mess. But she it was described as being a very loving mom, a very involved mom for years. And yet she does, in some respects, victimize her children, you know, kind of dumping them off with him and not paying attention to him, talking bad about him, kind of pulling them into all this and, you know, does some really unfortunate things to them, which is very painful to them. And so her husband or ex-husband sees all this and is concerned legitimately, really, in a way about her mental health and about the impact on the kids. But I think her getting that letter saying, essentially, you know, even though you've, you know, at times said you don't want the kids or whatever, I'm going to take the kids. I think that really was the moment she decided you are taking nothing else from me. Now you've took enough. Yes. I could totally see that. It's such a, just a horrible story. And, you know, to, you know imagining so many things about this case, it's, it was terrible, but imagining your whole life being played out in the media the way it was, all the national media attention and just, and I know that there was, you know, people participated in that, but I just think it makes it so much worse in some weird kind of way, you know, to have the whole country focused on the privacy of your home and hearing all the things that went on and just, you know, I think would just add fuel to the fire. Not to mention, I mean, you know, she does murder. I think, you know, she gets convicted of second degree murder, which I think really was a bone because there's so much evidence that it was premeditated. You You didn't belong there. You don't live there. (laughs) You shouldn't be there. So the fact that you're there with a weapon when you're not supposed to be while they're sleeping and you decide that, you know, you're going to play God with both. She's completely innocent ish. You know, but, you know, it's not your husband. And Ash, it's crazy. <laughs> it really is. And you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, her her explanation, she took the stand and wanted to take the stand. Her explanation was that, you know, she went over there to talk to them and she was going to convince them to, you know, not take the boys. And she was going to try to make some peace with them. And of course, why do you need a gun to do that? Well, her explanation for that was that she wanted to make sure they were going to listen to her it was in the middle of the night yeah yeah i mean i don't think any obviously the jury did not buy it although i don't know if you knew this or not but the first trial um was hung because it not said yeah i was yes the first trial was was hung and what happened was there was a um what you said what happened was (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're just too cute <laughs> i just totally get into it tiffany I know. no i love it <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so um the choices for the first jury were manslaughter or first degree murder and apparently 10 of the jurors said she's guilty of first degree murder let's put her away the other two said no she's under all this duress she had testimony from her defense that she was not capable of forming this intent they pled diminished capacity, not which is not insanity, but it's kind of saying she was so distraught that she couldn't really reason with herself, but not to the level of being insane, but she just was so overcome with emotions. Um, and so they they were hung. And so that, that's their only reason, I think, that they tried her for second degree murder the second time. Right, because they couldn't find the means in between. I mean, that's happened on a couple of cases now that they haven't offered more options and then... I mean, usually then they might get off like Casey Anthony. They couldn't, you know what I mean? You only had two options. And so the jury, you got to give them that third option because you're putting people's lives in your hands and people take that very seriously. I, I think jurors really do take it seriously. I mean, it's amazing to me. I mean, I think they agonize over that a lot of times. Not every jury, obviously, every jury is is different, but you know, when you talk to jurors afterwards or when you see interviews with them, I mean, a lot of them, particularly when it's a murder case or a death penalty case, they really do agonize over that because they realize the responsibility that they have. They literally are holding a person's life in their hands, whether it's spending life without parole or whether it's, you know, potentially getting the death penalty. So it is a very serious obligation. Yeah, no, it's great. that I mean, they they take it that seriously because it 
it's literally it could be life or death and i don't know if i want that decision <laughs> well i think we all know if we were in that situation god forbid we would want a jury that took that very seriously oh, absolutely, you know? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Do you hear of many cases like that, that have that same like uh, vengeance? And I know you hear a lot of different cases. You know, it's yeah, it's interesting. So it, I, to answer that question, I think it has to depend on what hat I'm wearing. Mm -hmm. uh, meaning, we all know, I think that most murders are not particularly interesting to most of us because they're just people getting in fights or getting in arguments, one person picking up a knife or a about a gun and impulsively shooting the other person. So, you know, most murders are not the ones that we hear about who are interested in true crime because they're not this, in, quote, interesting one, right? We want the ones that are more complicated or there has to be some story to it a lot of times. So when I used to work in a maximum security prison, I would hear a lot of those stories. You know, they were those kind of stories. They weren't you know, my wife was fooling around. And so I followed she and her, you know, she and her new lover. And then Ambush them and that kind of thing. So when I when I'm wearing my crime writer hat, I hear obviously and research a lot of those stories. And I've been lucky enough to interview, you know, some people who've been involved in situations like that, often family members or sometimes victims. It just depends on the situation. And then the last hat I'll mention is I do a lot of evaluating um like risk assessment and those kinds of things with offenders. And recently I've been doing a lot of evaluations of offenders who were convicted as juveniles of very serious crimes, oftentimes murder, um, you know, because they got life without parole as a juvenile. And to get life without parole as a juvenile, you have to do something really, really bad. And so I am hearing more stories of more serious crimes like this, or some premeditated crimes and those kinds of things, evaluating these inmates who are now in their four. 50s. And the question is, you know, are they the same person that they were as a juvenile? And should they have the chance of getting parole at some point? And that's a very tricky question. It depends on who you ask. It depends on the inmate. It depends on a lot of things. Your, our philosophy of what the criminal justice system means. Does it mean punishment? Does it mean rehabilitation? So it's been really interesting to hear a lot of those stories from people who are now looking back you know, 20 years, 30 years on what they did as teenagers and kind of where they are now. Right. I get that. I just wonder sometimes because it, when you've been locked up for so long, I think you kind of lose sight maybe of what either some of the urges were, the temptations that are out there. You know what it was, but you forget how strong they can be. And once you get released again, if you still have that hunger deep in you, it's going to come back out. I think that that is definitely true for some people. I mean, you, you can see people, um, particularly serial sex offenders, who can go into prison and just be model prisoners, model, model inmates for years because there isn't that temptation. And then they get out and they spend that time sometimes fantasizing about what they're going to get out or you know finding other ways to deal with those urges and then they get out and they do reoffend. So there are certainly are people who do who are who are like that. There are also people who get into prison and commit a bunch of crimes in prison. So I mean the way people act in prison is sometimes related to how they're going to do on the outside, but as you point out, not always. So it really does depend on the situation. I mean I think we I think we would agree that if somebody got in a bar fight and someone died the person didn't mean the person, you know, for the person to die. They're they're fighting or whatever. Somebody picked up a bottle and hit the person over the head. The person falls back, hits their head, and they die or whatever. And they're convicted of secondary murder. I don't think most of us would think, and I think it's it's probably accurate that this person is going to get out and feel a need to you know pick up a beer bottle and hit somebody else over the head and right. kill that person. I mean, hopefully they've had some you know some insight in prison, and it, it was kind of a just a bizarre situation to begin with. So, yeah, I mean, if it all of a sudden just impulse and do it, then I mean, I don't think that means you might have an alcohol problem that you need to address with and an anger issue that you might need to address with. And maybe you have to complete those, but then maybe, you know, you can get a second chance. 
But I mean, these sex offenders. That is such an insight, I think, Tiffany, because, you know, a lot of there is a lot of programming in prison. And of, of course, people do it for all different reasons. Sometimes they're doing it because they really do want to, you know, quit drinking, quit using drugs, deal with anger management problems, be a better parent or whatever. Sometimes they feel like it's to help the parole board, you know, give them a chance to get out. I mean, it depends. but you're absolutely right. There are oftentimes those kinds of underlying issues. And if those aren't addressed, you're absolutely right. It doesn't mean the person's going to go out to another bar, but that, that anger problem or the substance abuse problem is going to leave them vulnerable to acting out in some other way. Exactly. And depending on how long they've been in there for, it's hard to come back into the real world. You know, like how many prisoners went away, came out and there were cell phones. They're like, what the heck is this? You know, like we just evolve so crazy. If you've been away for a while, it would be hard to to adjust. I think it would too. That's one thing I have. I don't have a lot of experience is talking to inmates who have now gotten out who's been, who've been in for a long period of time, that would be a really interesting study. I know that people do those kinds of studies and there's all kinds of organizations that try to help inmates get out. There's a second chance here. There's in San Diego, there's, you know, there's ones all over the place, but it would be really interesting, I think, to, you know, follow people who have been, you know, in prison for 30 years or 40 years and see when they get out. I cannot even imagine. I, I've heard many inmates who've been in long 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 timers i guess who have expressed those fears of getting out um i mean excitement but also terror about what right. is it going to be like what am i going to do what how am i going to adjust you know i've never seen a computer i've never been on a computer i mean you know there's again there's there there are steps that they take in prison to try to help the person get ready to be released but there is that you're there is no substitute for having been out there and seen progress all the things that have happened since then right i think that's why a lot of reoffend because now prison is what they know that's what they're comfortable with you know like they have a bed they get food it's slop but it's food and you know got your boys or whatever you may say or women and they're just more comfortable there i've heard that a couple times and it's just like it's almost you feel bad for them like that's that's what you call home but that's what they call home. Yeah. It's funny too. Um, I'll never forget one time when I first began working at um, medium maximum security prison. Yeah, I was just kind of getting used to it and I was really enjoying it, which I really did enjoy working there. But I had a son about this offender's age. He was very young to be in prison. And I remember just, he, he just, he reminded me of like a puppy in some ways. Like he was just kind of like friendly and just kind of, he seemed like he was 19 going on like 15 in some respects. And he was always bouncing around and you would never know he was in prison. He was just always so happy and everything. And I had to see him for something else. And at one point I just said to him, you know, because, you know, the first year of prison is the hardest. People always say that. And I think it's true. And I said, you know, what has it been like for you adjusting you know, and I'm expecting him to tell me just how horrible it's been. And and he goes, you know, it's not too bad. I mean, like my cousin Vinny is on this shard and then so-and-so is, you know, and and it was like my you know, my, my uncle is here. And it was like, I, I wanted to start crying all of a sudden because just I, I literally had that urge to start crying because number one, I was so surprised. Number two, it was like, it just gave me a sense that he had a pretty unusual family situation, but grown up basically in, in an extended family that had a long history of you know being incarcerated um had a lot of history of drug use and drug selling and those kinds of things gang involvement and for him this was not necessarily out of the norm and it was just really I mean, I guess maybe the mom and me especially came out too because it was like why would that why how can this be like normal for anybody like why would this be normal for anybody I don't understand that I mean I do understand that more now but it was really heartbreaking to me at the time I totally it's, it's almost like he didn't even have a chance yeah I mean you, you know both of us are victims rights advocates and you know I, I I've been very blessed in my life that I have worked with offenders and have worked with victims and I always encourage my students 
um, in my program, in a, this t- program that I teach, please promise me that you will do both at some point in your life, that you'll work with offenders and you'll work with victims as well. Because it's so easy to get polarized. And when you've worked with victims and with perpetrators, you just see how the complexity of crime and the, you know, and all the social issues and all the other issues. And at the end of the day, you know, once we turn a certain age, we're all responsible for what we do, you know, no, no matter what happened to us growing up. And that's a reality. And I think it should be that way from a society point of view. But then when you talk to individuals and you meet individuals, there are times when I've come away, not that not that often, but when I've come away thinking that, like thinking how how could this person have ended up differently given these circumstances? It would have taken a lot. And oftentimes all it would have taken, maybe Tiffany, is one person, you know, a teacher. I mean, one person that had connected with this individual. There are lots of people who never get involved in criminal activity, who grow up in horrendous situations, who have horrendous abuse. You know, so let's acknowledge that, right? Most people who have horrible backgrounds don't grow up to wind up in prison. So there's a lot of complicating or complex variables there. But there are times when I've just been like, I don't know how this person could have almost ended up any differently. Absolutely. I'm actually, I'm in the process of starting a uh, nonprofit called the Crime Connection because it is so important because it is like, if you are growing up and say your parents verbally abuse you, stuff like that, that's already embedded in your brain. And then you get older and then you date men who are going to treat you like garbage because that's the norm. And then down the road, like it could just go so many different ways. You know, little girls who are abused sexually, they could end up prostitutes, strippers, you know, they can't hold down a relationship. Like all these things carry things for the rest of their lives, literally. And it's so important, like for people, parents, especially to know what you do to your, your children when they're young. It makes an everlasting impression in one way or another. I think that's completely true. And you don't have to go very far you know, really in any direction to see not even just the generation that's there, the the mother and the daughter or the father and the son, or to see grandparents, you you can start seeing this trauma that gets passed down, you know, from generation to generation. And then the positive part of that is it just takes one person to break that cycle. But if that one person doesn't, it just continues. Um, And it seems like it just kind of like spreads out, you know, like it's just, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, it. I've seen it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. as I'm like, it's just so important. People don't think sometimes, you know, you sit and call your daughter fat and you do this and that, and, you know, you might not really mean it, but they're taking it so differently. And like, you know, four years later, she might have an eating disorder or cutting or it can just go so many different ways. But I mean, like you said, there are people who didn't have great lives that have become great, but that's probably because they dealt with whatever it was that was bothering them. I think that's I think that's probably true. I I do. I mean, I think um, I mean, some of the most courageous people I've ever met when I was a practicing therapist, which I'm not anymore, um, were people who came in my office and just had so much trauma and they worked so hard and so long and so diligently on dealing with that and moving past it and learning from it. And, and sometimes even using it to, you know, for good in a way, you know, transforming that into like power that they could then go out and try to help other people from being victimized or traumatized or whatever. We see this all the time with, um, you know, surviving families of people who've been murdered, who get these laws passed or become advocates for other victims. I mean, it's just truly amazing to see that the the good people sometimes do from the pain, you know, the the pain source. Absolutely. So many foundations and all scholarships and so many beautiful things happen. It just, it sucks. It had to happen from tragedy, (laughs) you know, but. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, And maybe it won't always then, you know, obviously good things happen without, tragedy and trauma, but it is, 
amazing to see how some people do choose to use their pain or transform their pain into a way to help other people. And I think that's, it's truly amazing to me when I see that. Absolutely. It's empowering. You got to live your best life. (laughs) You got to grow. Definitely true. Right. My dream resume. I don't know what you haven't done. I can think of, I've never jumped out of an airplane. <laughs> I can think of a lot of things. I've done that. <laughs> You've done that. There you go. <laughs> and you'll never find me jumping out of an airplane. Um, so there are some things, no, I would not do. But um, I know. Thank you, Tiffany. I really appreciate that. I mean, I, like I said, I have been very, very lucky to, you know, be able to do the things that I've done and and continue to do. and. Um, I feel really honored to be able to do that. And it's just, I don't know, people always kind of say, isn't it depressing? And I I don't know, it never has been depressing. It's, It's unbelievably sad sometimes. And, you know, it's also important to realize that I'm not the one going out crime scene, you know, and seeing the immediate aftermath of what has happened. You know, I'm not the family member who's getting that news. God forbid, hopefully I never will be. Or you will never be, or you know anybody, anybody ever would be. Um, but you know, so I'm very lucky in that you know I get to be involved in the criminal justice system and trying to improve that in some ways for victims and you know hopefully for offenders as well to help them not reoffend without you know having like some of our first responders and police officers and you know have to deal with the immediate aftermath of it. So. I can only imagine some things they see. I, I don't know. Uh, I used to want to do forensics. Oh, I've wanted to do all of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, even I was going to school to be a private investigator, but then they said I had to be a cop for two years. So after a year, I dropped out. So I'm like, I'm not pulling people over and doing all that stuff. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I just, I, I wanted to be a decoy. <laughs> <laughs> I know that some things are difficult. They really are difficult to to achieve. And yeah, like I said, I feel very lucky that I'm able to do some of the things that I that I do. And um, I can't think of anything I would want to do more. Yeah, you're not working. Yeah, that's right. That's that is absolutely right. My husband retired several years ago, and I'm like, I can't even fathom that. I mean, I honestly, it's like. You know, I get bored. <laughs> I would get so bored. I would get so bored. You know, it's like I would shop too much, so I'd have to go back to work. <laughs> <laughs> so you might be like the perfect person to ask. I thought I came up with a great idea, but I'm not sure how legal it is. So I thought for sex offenders or people who did like really bad, like battery or stalking should wear ankle bracelets. Mm-hmm. Is that allowed? I get it's an invasion of privacy, but at the same time, we need to know where these people are almost at all times. Because if they cut it or something, you know, there's a problem. Yeah. And boy, you're kind of getting into the legal arena in terms of the law. And so I'll tell you what I know, which is, you know, I need to make my disclaimer that I'm not an attorney. So I'm not going to be able to answer that. Like, okay, in California, here's the law about ankle bracelets and that kind of thing. I mean, they've definitely expanded their use um, clearly in terms of, you know, for example, when people got on bail, I mean, it used to be people would get on bail. If they, if they made bail, then they were just out and they might have to check in or whatever. And now I know they're using ankle monitors a lot more when somebody is out on bail. Um, I think the sex offender thing would be it would be kind of interesting. So there's a sex offender registry, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes. That's one kind of public, you know, forum for people to go and kind of check, which most people don't do, understandably. Um, I think it would become I, I think it would probably depend on so many different issues. So could you say, you know, you are a sex offender? Um there, so therefore, we need to know you're a public safety risk, or you could be. We need to know where you are at all times. I mean, I think in in theory, there, there's some merit to that idea. I think in practice is the problem. 
So it becomes, okay, what kind of sex offenses are we talking about? Are we talking about the first time somebody does something? Are we talking about somebody has to do two? Or do they have to do three? What if they're not what if they're not convicted and they plead down, which is something that happens very often, as I'm sure you know, where somebody does something and they they get I was interviewing somebody recently where their their conviction was for vandalism. And that was their conviction. And there was they did vandalize something in the throes of committing doing a sex crime, basically. It was a relatively minor one, but it still was so again, it just becomes so and then there's all the civil rights issues like you said a privacy and that kind of thing so i think those are the challenges could those be sorted out certainly potentially but it becomes very very complicated and sometimes ideas that do have merit and seem perfectly logical and rational can become kind of can backfire you know i think an example potentially of one is you know here in california there was a three strikes law that was passed years ago, where in the, the, if you have three felony convictions, then you're, it was kind of like the baseball thing, right? Three strikes and you're out. So you come in, you have three felony convictions, you're behind bars for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And you kind of go, okay, that I get it. I mean, hey, you know, three is a lot. I mean, it's not one, it's not two, you have three. Well, then you kind of go, okay, but a felony can be a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. I mean, if somebody gets caught with a certain amount of drugs, it could be a felony. If somebody has a drug problem for and they get pulled over a couple times with, with drugs or convicted of that. Should they be in prison for the rest of their life? So what happened was all these prisons started filling up with people who really weren't a risk to society um, in the way that we think of them as somebody who's, I mean, it's not hard to argue somebody is raped three people, they should be in prison for the rest of their life. But so it became a, a can of worms in right. terms of what the what the original idea was, which again, who with this obviously people did they passed it and then the the implementation of it has become very challenging gotcha i mean i say you don't want to wear the bracelet don't touch freaking children or touch anybody against their will or you realize that's the price you're going to pay so then let me ask you this i mean again i I, this has merit i understand it but you know playing devil because devil's advocate for a minute so what about Somebody's doing pornography, child pornography. I mean, they're not, they're in their home. So they can have an ankle blanket bracelet on. And the, you, you know, so I, again, right. right. No, I, I didn't even think of that. It just becomes so complicated, doesn't it? I mean, it does. I mean, I it, wish I, I have a lot of questions about these things more than answers. You know, that's, those are things for like our policymakers and law enforcement and legal professionals to kind of wrangle and figure out how they want to do that. But it becomes, it seems so simple on the surface. It absolutely does. And then we start kind of going, the implementation becomes challenging. Oh, yeah, because you have to have, you have to think of literally everything. It's almost like a contract. Well, if it's this, then it would be this. And if it's this, then that would lead to this, just so everybody knows what means what. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, that's, that's a lot of places to go. <laughs> it is. Unfortunately, but I mean, I just think that'd be a great idea because if something happened, you could check, oh, is there anybody in the area or I don't know, just maybe they'd stop. (laughs) I think there, I think there may be, and I'll have to check on this and get back with you, Tiffany, because again, I'm not an attorney and I don't keep up to date with, you know, the, the people that I see are already in prison for the most part. So I'm not seeing them outside of prison, but I do think there have been some situations where people have been as a condition of their parole mm-hmm. have been required to wear ankle bracelets for a certain amount of time. Um, and I could be completely speaking out of term, but I, I do think there have been situations where that has been a condition of parole for, for a certain amount of time. You, you're never going to be able to do it where somebody indefinitely wears a, you know, wears an ankle bracelet. Just when they're old enough, you know, not to get it up anymore. Yeah. <laughs> So that there's Viagra, right? There's that's the problem. There's you know you find all the loopholes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, <that's> too funny. Oh <laughs> um, well, okay. So, do you want to tell everyone where they can find you? I know you have your Psychology Today blog, and you're on LinkedIn and. Well, that would be great. Let's see. So my website is pretty easy. 
drjoanijohnston.com. And um, there's a lot of articles on there. So if you're looking for one place with a bunch of different articles, that's an easy place to go. And then there's my psychology blog called The Human Equation, um, which has been, I think I've been doing that for about 12 years now. Um, What else can I tell you? And then I have uh, um, Unmasking a Murderer, a YouTube channel that I've been doing for a couple of years, very sporadically, however. Um, But um, yeah, I I really enjoy, um, you know, I really, really enjoy just the talking, you know, talking to people, the the lay people, you know, about about psychology and those kinds of things. I just think it's it's interesting. It's just very interesting. Very interesting. I love it. I am going to get a copy of your book, 101 Questions That True Crime Fans Ask. I can only imagine what kind of questions you get. (laughs) But that sounds like right up my alley. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I hope that you enjoy it. I mean, I really had fun writing that book. It really came about because of my Psychology Today blog and just keeping a list of questions. you know, over the years of people writing in and just kind of saying whatever, you know, how, how old is the average serial killer or, you know, whatever. I mean, just every question that I thought of, I just kind of kept a list. And so, um, you know, before long, well, like, I guess it was pretty long, actually, that um, I was kind of at one point was like, gosh, I just I want to make sure I know the answer to these because I research this all the time. But there's a 100 questions here. And, you know, I want to make sure if somebody kind of says to me, what is the difference between a serial killer and a mass killer? I want to be able to say that. So that's what that's that's the origin of that. I think it's great. I think that would pique anybody's interest. <laughs> You're like, yes, <laughs> are my questions in there? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's. It, it, it was really it was really fun to do. It was very interesting to do. And it's nice, of course, because it's always changing. Right. I mean, yeah, it just it's, it's always changing. You know, the questions and then how we view perpetrators certain ages, um, the impact on families. I mean, just what if, one of the things I've been interested with in recently is just culture. You know, how does culture affect, um, you know, people and the things that they do? If so, you know, do you know what I mean? mean? Like, oh, a lot. Somebody would a perpetrator who is born in this country be the same or act the same or is a psychopath, for example, you know, what we call a psychopath in the United States. Would that person act if they were in Saudi Arabia or whatever? I mean, there's just I think that's a pretty interesting uh, question. I think the answer would be yes. (laughs) I think if you have those urges. I don't think it's going to matter where you go because I've watched many documentaries and stuff on serial killers. And I always found it interesting when they all said it was pretty much like a hunger that they couldn't get rid of. Even if they tried, they didn't want to do it anymore. They just couldn't get rid of it. And so where do you think um, this hunger comes from? Where would your, where would you put your money? Is it nature or nurture? Do you think? I think it's the lack of nurture. I think it could be hatred towards a certain, it could be females in general. It could be redheads. It could be whatever the trigger is. And it could be shoes. Uh, It could be anything. And that is what sets them off. And even though they didn't plan on it, now they are. So what do you think? So you describe a lot about, about nurture in there. What about nature? I mean, do you think there are people who were born? Uh, You have to be, I guess, because there are people who came from great homes that are sociopaths. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. just the way they were born. So I do think it's possible, but I think most of the time it's kind of bred in because you have to have connection growing up. You have to find and feel that somebody actually cares about you and loves you. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that, then you don't have that not only to give to other people, which cuts out your feelings, your emotions. You don't have any of that. Uh-huh. And you, then you see people as property or prey or opportunity instead of friend or stuff like that. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, it's interesting to kind of get your perspective on there. I mean, do you think that there are people who have some kind of deficit in terms of, you know, they don't, they can't feel empathy for other people or they can't, I mean, that, that kind of argues more for a genetic kind of component, right? Or, or, or a biological. So what do you think about that part of it? Because I think it is easy to see the environmental part of it, like we're talking about, whether it's trauma or whether, but, you know, I mean, and I'm, I'm just asking your opinion about that. I mean, I'm not going to say, and the answer is, you know, <laughs> the right answer I'm just really, really interested in, you know, what you think about that. Because, you know, there certainly seem to be swings in mental health and psychology where you have this, you know, it's all nature. It's all nature. Everybody's born that way. No, it's not. It's nurture. And, and so I'm interested in getting your perspective on that. I was actually heading to mental health because, you know, there could be bipolar, schizophrenia, could mm-hmm. be genetic and uh-huh. nobody knew, or it could be mm-hmm. onset. Um, sometimes these things do just pop up. It could be drug abuse that led to severe depression, which led to mania, which, you know, you can go down the mm-hmm. list. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I see it both ways. But if I can help protect somebody down the line from getting it because of what they saw growing up, then that's, that's what I would like to help. Obviously, if you were born with a condition, I think I can help you. <laughs> so that's when they reach to you. Well, they would have, but you don't do that anymore unless you're already locked up. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, it's, it, it, it is an interesting question, I think. You know, we've seen a little a swing more toward almost like more more toward nature recently it's kind of been interesting because for so long you know the pendulum was definitely toward it's your childhood it's your childhood it's, it's only your childhood and um or not only but that's the main thing it's how you grew up and your parents and all that kind of stuff which there's no doubt there's a huge influence there but and now the pendulum kind of you know it's kind of with, now that we can do these fmris so they can look at your brain while you're doing things and that kind of thing there and look at some of those different structural functions in the brain happening there's been a little bit more of a swing <laughs> over over and I think there probably are some brain differences that have been identified but I still feel like any brain difference maybe as a group we can say okay psychopaths are more likely to be this way or whatever as a group but you can never be like it's what is this person you know what I mean there's a whole difference between in general you know people who are psychopaths are like this versus if if you have this brain difference then you are like this, or you're going to do this, or, you know, so, yeah, there's so many questions that are so many interesting philosophical things to think about. (laughs) A lot of rabbit holes to go down. Oh, yeah, yeah, a lot, a a lot. So where are you wanting to go with your stuff, Tiffany? I mean, I'm trying to break the chain. I want to break, you know, um, when I was growing up, I had to deal with negativity and all that. And I held it in for a really long time. And I did not, it cut me off from the parent to a point where we just didn't connect anymore. Uh And it took me to grow up to realize that that was done to them. Yeah. And it made sense. And now we have a great relationship and it's, it's just so important to know like the little things you do have impact, whether you think it or not. And people could think, oh, I'm okay. I, I got over it. I got over it. Well, your body still holds the trauma. Mm-hmm. And there's just so much more to it instead of just, eh, I'm good. No, mm-hmm. you're probably not. Because <laughs> you'll see little triggers and stuff, you know? And so pretty much what I want to do is bring awareness, uh, hopefully get people to realize that you have a huge impact on little people or anybody in general. Yeah. And just bring, you know, if you were sexually assaulted when you were young and it's possible you might reoffend if you're a man or female, you can go either way. But there's just so many roads that we need to figure out and then figure out how Mm -hmm. to correct it. So we can stop all this. (laughs) Like, is it therapy when they're very young? Because maybe there's things you need to work out. And then it would stop some of this. I I mean, I don't know, but I'm going to try. 
<laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot. I always have said that there's there's a lot of places to start. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of places. You know, whether it's being the one to kind of end things in your family, whether it's being the one to try to talk. You know, have get good prenatal care. You know, for moms or I mean, there's so many. You know, whether it's dealing with kids who have parents in prison, there's so many different what there are so many different places to start, and that to me is one of the most significant things is. You know, there is definitely a need for change and, and all that. And like I said, there is no shortage of opportunities to do better. Absolutely. Just think if we could have got to like Charles Manson or Jerry Burroughs or any like a, quite a few of them and fixed whatever it was when they were small. None of this might have happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's. That's a true, that's a story of so many people's lives. I, I always ask my, my guys, my inmates, women too. I see women as well. You know, I say, you know, do you have any turning points in your life? What's a turning point in your life? And it's just amazing how so many of them know and kind of look it back and kind of go, whether it's a turning point for good, which I hear sometimes um, and see sometimes, or whether it was just, you know, I was, I missed two questions to qualify for the Marines. And because I, I missed those two questions, my life just completely went, you know, I mean, it's just, it, it, anyway, we're getting back again to all the complicated questions, but, um, but I think they're worthy, you know, like we're talking about, they're worthy questions, things to think about. Absolutely. And to bring awareness to, because you might not even realize you're doing some of these things, but if you can catch it and stop it, breaking the cycle. Yes. I love it. That was your, that's what you say was your, um, your goal was, um, breaking the cycle. Yeah. That's that. Yeah. I said, what are you doing? I'm you're, I'm, yeah, I'm breaking the cycle. It's like, that's pretty clear. Yeah. I'm going give it my all. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to kind of maybe head out, but it was delightful. Yes. I love this. Thank you so much. If you ever want to come back on, let me know. I, I'll I'm, talk I'm prime sure. with you. <laughs> Thanks. You know, we, we were having, a, I mean, I, I literally just felt like we weren't even, we were just like friends like talking about stuff. So I didn't feel any, you know, like any, I wasn't even paying attention really to the subjects or whatever. I felt like we were just talking about stuff, which is the best kind of interview really. No, honestly, it's, it's great. Thank you so much. I was like, Oh my God, I was a little nervous. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't be. No. Let's definitely keep in touch with each other. Um, okay. And I, I love your, I love your goal. I mean, that's just fantastic. Thank so. you. I, I see the importance of it because it, it destroyed me and I am so much better now because I, I was able to figure it out. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Well, I'm super, super excited for you and I um, look forward to continuing our discussions. Yes. Um, <laughs> All right. Perfect. Thank you so much right. again. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. Make sure that if you are obsessed with crime and serial killers that you follow her, she has very interesting things. Make sure that you like, follow, subscribe my podcast. Leave a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you can fit one. If you haven't made it over to crimeovercocktails.com, make sure you do. Lots of useful helplines there for you. And we'll talk crime another time. Bye.